So two weeks ago, Jonathan laid a foundation for this series. And then last Sunday, we finally experienced winter. And we had a snow day. And so uh, we're coming here today. M many of you, I think, probably had some uh, bookmarks that listed who's preaching when. And, and some of you may look at me and go, you're not supposed to be today. You're supposed to be Mark. Well, snow day, right? And so we're, we've modified a couple of things. I'm preaching today, Mark's next week, and then we get right back with the schedule into Revelation. Uh, so what I'm going to try to do even this morning is continue to lay the foundation for this series. And then I've also merged from Acts 2.42 the first and last of the qualifiers of the church, which is the apostles' teaching and then prayer. I'm going to start off right now saying and sharing with you what the main idea of the sermon is, and then we'll go into explaining it. But the main idea is that local churches are called to, together, think differently than the world around us because we commune with the Lord. So that's a lot there, but want to make sure that um, we go through this and seek to understand what the scriptures are actually teaching us. Now, before we break this down, <clears throat> I want us to go to evaluate even the title of this series. So I'll go back in that slide. Church in the end times. What does end times mean? In the scriptures, we actually have a broad definition and a narrow definition. A broad definition of end times in the scripture is that time period that goes from Jesus' ascension into heaven all the way until he comes again. Okay? That's a, so far... 2,000-ish years, right? Then we have a narrow definition, which is those events that immediately precede Jesus's coming again. And you could say, okay, so which one is it? What are you talking about here, Pastor Timothy? And I would say both. Both can be referred to here, whether we're in the end-end times or the end times. What we're talking about here is how God has called his church to live in this world. And that we are to live in this world not simply somewhat differently from the world, but completely different than how this world lives. Our thinking and actions should reveal desires about us that actually run contrary to the world's thinking and ways precisely because we know God and we fellowship with God. Jesus himself told people that his followers were the salt of the world, the salt of the earth. And what does that mean? Salt has a savoriness, brings out the flavors of things, right? And that as salt, what we are to do and be are individuals who reveal the savoriness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus and how he can satisfy and change us. And so my question for us as a church, just us, are we living this way in 21st century world? Are we living this way in Holland, Michigan? And I ask that because Jesus also says that the salt can lose its saltiness. We can lose the savoriness. And so we should ask ourselves, are we losing it? How do we know if we have lost it? 
And what do we do if we have lost it? That's a big part of what this series is about. So I want to start this sermon today, again, by building off of the foundation that Jonathan had laid a couple of weeks ago. And then after that, we'll get into Acts 2.42, a little bit later in this sermon. But if we're thinking about what God has called us to as the church, we see we're supposed to be different. But in order to be different, we have to know what the norm is. What is the culture's way of thinking? Not just culture, but the, the sinful world system. How do they think? And so I want us to start off with that question. How does the world think? And even specifically, I want to ask, how does our current Western world think? A couple of years ago, I went through a very dense, big philosophical book. I know some of you have heard of this called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, written by a man named Carl Truman. And I actually did the audiobook of that one, and whoa, my brain hurt many times. Felt like it was stalling out, trying to figure out what is he exactly saying. But what Carl Truman was doing in this book is he was tracing, and he's a historian, and he was tracing over the last 400 years how, how we, in 21st century world, have gotten to the current way of thinking about identity and our view of self. And what he has shown is that over that course of 400 years, we finally gotten to a, finally have gotten to a point where generally the, the average person thinks that feelings define who they are at the core of their being. And in order to be authentic, you have to express those feelings to everyone else and everyone else has to accept those feelings because that's who you are. Now, as a pastor, I, I would say I can see that mindset in the culture around us. And I would also say I see that many times in professing Christians as well. Our feelings and our emotions become the highest priority in defining our reality. And so after Jonathan's sermon two weeks ago, I, when I went home, Whoever of my children were in the kitchen, I said something like, there is one statement Jonathan made in that sermon, one statement that I wish everybody walked away thinking about. And I'm not going to ask you to guess what it is. It was two weeks ago, my goodness. Um, but hopefully you'll remember from this point on. And it was this statement. We need to not only think about what we think about, we need to think about how we think about what we think about. Whoa. Just think about it, okay? <laughs> we need to think not only about what we think about, but how we think about what we think about. Because here's the reality that many people don't think about, and that is we don't realize we're always interpreting we're always interpreting situations and circumstances and people, and we're not thinking, why am I interpreting that way? How am I interpreting that way? What, what, what are the reasons behind this? We often just come to our conclusions. 
and we don't question our conclusions. We need to think about how we think about what we think about. And this goes back to what I just said about our current culture. There is a philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor. And Charles Taylor, he comments about this modern world. And he refers to the modern mindset as um, a current culture that embraces expressive individualism. And Carl Truman is trying to give a synopsis of what Charles Taylor says, which is the idea that in order to be fulfilled, in order to be an authentic person, in order to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly or perform publicly that which I feel I am on the inside. Basically put, the general Western cultural mindset is that feelings define reality. And now again, I think that most, if not all of us, would actually affirm that we see our culture living this way. If something causes emotional problems or feelings affirm something, people think they have to follow that in order to be their authentic selves. And that's at least one of the reasons why I think there's so much chaos in this world. But this idea also affirms what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy back in the first century. I'm going to read his words. Know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self. I'm just going to stop there. I could read more on the list. Let's just stop. People will be lovers of self. Why is that a problem? I need to love me. Okay, it goes on. And Paul says, without love for what is good, and then look at the last one, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he says, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, yet still holding on to ideas of godliness but denies God himself. Now again, we can look at that and we go, yeah, oh, we do live in the last days. Look at all those people out there. But if you heard, I mentioned earlier that I think that this mindset still exists within Christians. In the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Roman church, you may be familiar with this verse, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So Paul doesn't assume, just like what Jonathan said a couple of weeks ago, just because you became a Christian doesn't mean that how you think is all accurate now. And the idea that Paul gives in Romans chapter 12, this conforming to the world, is, is this, this idea of being forced into the mold of something. So if you think about a cookie cutter, you know, that the cookie cutter comes in and says, that's the mold, that's what it needs to look like. Then we as Christians are over here, we're completely different, and the world tries to cut us into its mold. And Paul says, don't. Don't be cut into the mold of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to think about how we think about things, not just what we think about. And I can't help but wonder... If many of us, when we think about following after Jesus, 
we might just think, we might just have the same cultural mindset and then just say, Jesus comes to come alongside and elevate us a little bit higher than the rest of the world. You say, what are you saying? Okay, so I'm going to give some examples. I'm going to pick on a first century church to try to help us to understand how just embracing the mindset of the culture and adding Jesus does nothing. So I can imagine you probably, some of you at least, know the church I'm going to pick on, and that's going to be Corinth. We know Corinth had a lot of disagreements. There was disunity within the church. And that's because Corinth did embrace the culture's way of thinking at that time, first century. And Paul says, you're diverted from Christ. Every time he's addressing a new issue, a new issue, Jesus isn't central. This thing is central over here. So, so as you get to the beginning of, of 1 Corinthians there is an issue that Paul brings up almost immediately, and he says, he says, because you think this way, you are carnal. Have you guys heard the phrase carnal Christian before? You don't want to be a fleshly Christian, which is true. You don't want to be a carnal Christian. But do you know the context? Do you know what the issue was that Paul says is carnal? I, I just, just, just I, wa I want to see by raised hands if, if there's some people who know what the issue is. Okay, we got a couple of people here. All right, let's go and see. Evaluating who's the best preacher. That's the issue. Let that sink in. Some people, I, I love Paul. I love Cephas or Peter. I mean, because, you know, I mean, after all, Peter actually walked with Jesus. Paul did it. And Paul even himself admits he's a little boring right? And then, and then other people, no, we're of Apollos. And what we know of Apollos is that he was trained in Greek oratory skills. So like, yeah, I could see being a person saying Apollos. I mean, I just want God to be glorified. I just want people to know and understand Apollos can reach the culture the best. And so Apollos is the best one. And they're arguing over this. And Paul says, you're carnal. You're fleshly. Why? Why is that fleshly? I, I, don't, I don't know if the Corinthians were actually like in a room arguing with each other over these things, but what they were doing is they, what Paul reveals is you're elevating people and styles over Jesus. So I want, like, bring it into our context here. I, I have had people tell me before, I mean, I really like it when you preach, but when so-and-so preaches, ah, oh, it's so hard. Okay. And then, and then somebody else will talk about that, that person that this individual doesn't really resonate with, and they'll come up to me and they'll be like, oh my goodness, that sermon was so amazing. God really used that in my life. Who's right? Oh, you're not even going to touch that, right? Who's right? Because here's the thing, what, we, what I think we do in our culture is we say, how did it make me feel? How did it affect me? And therefore, my evaluation must be right. Is that true? Well, Becky knows that's not true, and Jonathan does, okay? But it's not true. It's not true. Jesus matters, right? Right? Is Jesus exemplified and glorified through a boring Paul or an amazingly eloquent Apollos? 
if Jesus is magnified, Jesus is magnified, right? And my feelings on that really don't matter. Does that make sense? Kind of? Maybe? You just think about that. The next one that I want to go with is how, how to use our spiritual gifts in the church. I mean, Paul takes chapters on this one. And I actually think that the way he addresses the spiritual gifts in Corinth uh, reveal that we in our day kind of think similarly about spiritual gifts. I, I think many times people use spiritual gifts to elevate themselves, which what's the point of spiritual gifts? To glorify God, to, ele- to magnify Jesus Christ, not to magnify myself. So when Paul talks to them, he says, you're not using this to serve one another. You're using this to emphasize you. And so then Paul gives this body illustration. We're all parts of one body, and that body is Christ's body. But as a part of the body, you've got different parts in the body that are working together in order to magnify Jesus. Okay, we got that? Now, let me just take that illustration a little bit further. And let's just imagine that you are the one that's the eyeball, and you're gifted as the eyeball. That's, that's, that's pretty phenomenal. You get to see and, and get to tell people what's like going on, okay? But let's just say all you think about is like how amazing it is to see. And you want everybody else to see, but, but you know that not everybody else can see, but you've been gifted with sight, okay? And you want to use that gift to its maximum ability. So you have this suggestion, pluck me out of the eye socket because I want to see everywhere, all at once. Is that a smart move? Not very smart? Well, one, you're clearly not realizing that there are muscles that enable your eye to move. And if you get plucked out of the eye socket, you're just dangling, and that's gross. Um, but, But then there's disease that can come and all these other things. All you're thinking about is you. But see, let me get practical with us. Sometimes I can talk to people, even within our own context, that they communicate as though I'm gifted in this. Therefore, I ought to have all the freedom to do whatever I want with my gifting. Even pluck myself out of the eye socket. No. Because your gift is meant to serve others to show the magnificence of Jesus. Right? How we feel about ourselves, how we think about ourselves, our gifting, or even think about other people must be subservient to Jesus. We need to confront how we think about what we think. And in so many other ways, in so many other ways, we as Christians can live on the basis of our feelings and our emotions. We, we can base our relationship on the, with the Lord on how we feel in a given day. We can base our relationship with other believers on how we feel about them or how they feel about us. We can base our relationship with our spouses, our children, on how we feel. Listen, I'm not saying feelings are all bad, but feelings are, are meant to enhance reality, not define reality. You hear that? And so... The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
he says, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. I can't take every thought captive if I'm not knowing how I'm thinking about things. But once I know how I'm thinking, that one is not right. And it must be captive to Jesus Christ. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. How we think must be subject to Jesus, which leads me to the second question. How do we know when our thinking is different than the world's? How we think is tested and developed through how we behave towards one another in a local church context. How did I get to that conclusion? Galatians. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, like to serve you. Don't use this freedom to center on self, but serve one another through love. Four. The whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. So we're called to freedom. And what does freedom look like? The context here is saying that freedom, freedom is seen by how and that we serve the another's with, with which whom we, with whom, yes, let me start over again. We see the effects by how and that we serve the another's with whom we are one, the fellow Christians in the local church. That's Paul's talking to the Galatian church. You, because because here's, here's the reality. You can say until you're blue in the face that you love other people, right? Or I feel love for people. Hmm, Great. How do you, I, I, I love Christians. How are things with your local church? Oh, they are so messed up. I really don't like spending time with them. I mean, once a week, but how do you interact with them? By how and that we serve the another's with, with whom we are one. If Christ is central, if Jesus is central, then we love those whom he loves, right? And Jesus died for God's children, right? And so if Jesus died for you, then God says, I am to love you, and you are to love me. And that's not just a feeling. That's shown in actions of service in order to show the magnificence of Jesus, but if Jesus is not central, and if we're not living in the freedom that Christ has given, then we're just going to be a place where we have our soapboxes. And we're like, I really like these things. I really like these things. I really like these things. And these people in the church gather over there, and these ones gather over there, and these gather over there. And then Paul says, just watch out, because you're going to start biting and devouring one another. Because Jesus is not central. I do believe that we're not going to act and live this way unless we have actually been transformed by Jesus. Which means now we can actually enter into Acts chapter 2. 
And if you have your Bibles, feel free to go there in Acts 2, verse 42. And here's just the point that I want to emphasize with Acts 2.42. The church is called to together commune with the Lord. If our thinking is different, we're being transformed in our thinking, then we're thinking about how we're thinking and we are going to serve one another. And what we see in Acts 2.42 is this service. The church is called to together commune with the Lord. Peter's preaching the gospel to people in Jerusalem. And then we're told that 3,000 people are, added, are baptized and then added to the church in Jerusalem that day. I can't imagine that kind of growth. I mean, I can't imagine, and that sounds stressful to me. Oh my goodness, who are all these people? And what do they believe? And what do they think? And where's this and that? And the, oh, how are we going to maintain unity here? The Spirit. Look what the Spirit does. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The Spirit brought immediate unity because he says they devoted themselves together to following certain things. Just like a body is made up of many parts, but it moves, it should, a healthy body moves together with itself for certain aims and purposes. So it is with this picture of this early church in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit caused them to see that they were united by someone greater than their individual selves. And as you continue to read on in this passage, as we, as we did even earlier in the service, Luke writes that through this devotion, the church lived in such a way that they were salt in the world. They showed the savoriness of Jesus in verse 47. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. They devoted themselves to these realities. So you look at this, and you see God added to the church. Now, I want to ask a question on how you think about what you think. What do you think the church is? What do you think, what do you think the church is? We have like sloppy language in English, I think, for the church. If you were in a car with a friend, and they didn't know, you know, you were part of Ventura, and you were then driving down the road on Quincy, and then you go, oh, that's my church. No, it's not. This building is not Ventura Baptist Church. Do we, we know that, right? Right? Yeah? Okay. This, this building is the gathering of Ventura, uh, the, the place where the gathering happens, the place where the people who have committed together come together as one. But this is not the church, right? It's the gathering place for the people that come together. And so the emphasis must be in our thinking about church. The emphasis must be the glory of God through people. If I just think of the church as a building, so we got Ventura Baptist Church, you've got... Uh, New Richmond Baptist Church, you have Rose Park Baptist, you have Central Avenue CRC, those are all churches. If I think about those things, I think we can actually fall prey 
and I think many people do, to just evaluating churches on the basis of their experiences in the worship service. Music, uh, preacher, how do you make me feel? Instead of thinking in terms of, oh Lord, let me gather with a people where we are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and of prayers. Because where that takes place, that's where the Spirit is. Amen? It's not just about me coming into a seat and experiencing something on a Sunday. It's about God's people coming together to ignite a passion to follow Jesus. And not only on Sundays, but every day. How do we think about church? Now, some people might get where I'm going here, and you could say, well, if I devote myself to these things with a specific group of people, then I'm limiting myself. Because, you know, I have these gifts over here, and I, I, I could do that, I could do this, I could do that, I could do this, I could do that. I'm limiting myself by committing to a group of people. And in some ways, you're right. But it's, it's, it's more like, just like an eye is limited by being put in the socket. That make sense? And so what Paul says, it's for freedom Christ has set you free. Now give yourself. Give yourself to the service of the people. That's freedom, that you can serve and serve and serve and serve so that we might know and savor Jesus more and show his savoriness to others, to show his supreme worth and his value. Not living on the basis of just your feelings or how things or people or circumstances make you feel. You're living to ignite a passion to follow Jesus and praying that others would kindle more that passion to follow Christ in you. I think the implications when we look at Acts 2.42 is we really do see, and this is just a rephrase, that together, Ventura, we must commune with the Lord. We, together, must commune with the Lord. And when you look at Acts 2.42, what I've done this morning is I've put together the two outside terms, apostles' teaching and prayer. Mark's going to address next week breaking of bread and fellowship. Apostles' teaching and prayer are the items that relate to our relationship with the Lord. Breaking of bread and fellowship is our relationship with each other. But if we don't have the bookends, so to speak, of apostles' teaching and prayer, then fellowship and breaking of bread falls down. Okay? So I say, and I use this word, commune with the Lord. And my emphasis of this is simply saying that there is relational fellowship with God. Paul is not just, or, or Luke is not just saying that the early church had really good doctrine and they had well thought out prayers. That's, that's, not, that's not what he's saying. What is the point? What is the point of studying the Bible? You know? Is it just to like get a big head about all the knowledge that you have? You know, that's not the right answer. The point of studying the word is to know God, 
right? To know and behold Jesus Christ in his glory, right? And so when, when we're talking about doctrine or we're talking about prayer, we're, we're saying to the point that I am urging you on and you are urging me on to grow in my relationship and for us together to grow in our relationship with the Lord. To know him more deeply and profoundly. And listen, Paul, when he talks about the spiritual gifts, he says, don't say you don't need each other. If we're a part of the same body, I need you and you need me in order to know more of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know more of Jesus? Do you? Then we need to grow in the apostles' teaching and prayer together for the Holy Spirit to make this more known. So what does it mean by prayer? What does it mean by apostles' teaching? I'm going to take these briefly. But again, prayer is relationship. And Jesus gives a parable. Many of you are probably familiar with. Jesus gives a parable of a widow, and she is seeking after justice, and she's banging on the door of this judge's, um, of this judge's place. And she won't stop until she gets this justice. And finally, the judge gives her the justice because she was so persistent in banging on the door. The conclusion of this parable is so intriguing to me. It's, 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 it's almost weird, but it's beautiful. Because Jesus doesn't say something about persistent prayer. He actually says, when the Son of Man comes, so this is the end times, when the Son of Man, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find, do you know what the word is? Faith on the earth. He doesn't say, when the Son of Man comes, will he find persistent praying? Now, I think Jesus is connecting faith to persistent praying. If you have faith, you will persist in praying. But you can have persistent prayers and not have faith. Do you get that? Jesus talked to religious people who prayed. And they repeated words and they repeated phrases. That's persistence. And yet Jesus is saying, you have no faith. Now, what is faith? Because I, I want to make sure we understand faith. Faith is not simply, God, I believe you're going to give me exactly what I ask for. That is name it and claim it. And that's not what the Bible says. Faith in the Greek is dependence, reliance. I am relying on you. And we as a church... If Jesus is Lord of this church, which he is, we are utterly dependent on him, not just individually dependent on him, which that's true, but we together are. So we must be a people who devote ourselves together to praying to him in dependent faith. So whether it's during our service time on Sunday and we're praying, we really are. I hope, I hope and pray that you really are actively engaging your mind and your heart in praying these prayers together as a community. Or when we're in midweek fellowships or we're in discipleship groups, that when we're praying, we're actually praying with dependence on the Lord, wanting to know him more. Now the apostles' teaching, what's that? The apostles were those individuals whom Jesus revealed his resurrected self to and commissioned them to teach. And Jesus said to them, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. And they taught, they were called to teach how Jesus taught. 
and teach what Jesus taught. So what did the apostles teach? In Luke, Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It was then that they, it's all about you. It's all about Messiah. If you remember Jonathan's definition a couple of weeks ago, the Messiah is the one who fulfills all that the Old Testament says about him to solve the sin problem. All the scriptures are about Jesus. And so we even have Jesus himself when he speaks to some religious individuals. If you're in discipleship group, you recognize this verse from recent. He confronts them and says, you pour over the scriptures because you think that you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. Here are religious people that they're studying, they're studying, they know, they're parsing and cutting all the fine lines and, and the dots and the crosses. And oh, we know, we know all of this because if we just know all of this, then we have eternal life. And Jesus says, you've missed it completely. It was talking about me. And so we have in the New Testament scriptures, the apostle Paul, who when he talks to the Corinthians, which actually we just mentioned many issues that Paul addresses, but Paul states his premise in the beginning. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That clearly doesn't mean that he only thought about Jesus, like only talked about Jesus, but what he's saying is in every situation, in every circumstance, whether it's who's the preacher or what are the spiritual gifts or you're going to court with each other or communion, whatever the issue is, I want to know how Jesus applies to this. Why? Because Paul also says elsewhere to the Corinthians that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not explicit in the church, then we're not Christian. What's, what's one word that's in Christian? Christ. Not a trick question. If Christ is not explicit, if Jesus is not center, we're not a church. If we're not focused on the apostles' teaching, which, by the way, would then be the whole of the New Testament. And the New Testament is always pointing to Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, you're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And you will follow him in all various ways of life. Together, then, Ventura, we must be we must be Jesus-centered and focused. The one who came and sacrificed glory and took the punishment for the sins that you deserved, the one who now reigns and has conquered sin and death, if you've been melted and moved by him, and you know that other people here have been as well, then you are part of Christ's body. And to be truly authentic, or maybe to say to not be a hypocrite, would mean to emphasize Jesus. 
because that is our identity now as followers of Jesus, Jesus himself. Together, devote ourselves to help each other, to know Jesus, and to ignite a passion for him. Now, how do we know if we're really helping each other in our fellowship with the Lord? How do we know if we, together, are fellowshipping with the Lord? I already mentioned it earlier. We're set free to serve each other. What does that mean? We have a very sterilized view of the word serve. Do you know that? Did, Did you know that? Because like in the first century, if someone said serve, ew, and no, because only servants serve, and I am not that status. We don't have that idea here in our, in our day and in our culture. I want to press that a little more because the mantra that Paul says we ought to have as Christians is this, for me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. I want to merge this idea with Acts 2.42, devoting themselves together to these things, to communion with the Lord through word and prayer, to live as Christ, to die as gain, can be put, I think, another way. And I want to see if I have that slide. We together must die for one another and live in anticipation of resurrection. Let that sink in. Why do I say that conclusion? That's a lot of words based off to live as Christ, to die as gain. We must die for one another to li- and live in anticipation of resurrection. Well, it's actually how Paul goes in Philippians. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Chapter 2, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you know this passage? A lot of us get really super excited about this passage, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But then he took on the form of a servant, and being made in the form of a servant, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And yet God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a new name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of us go, woo! Yeah, amen, praise the Lord, wow. And Paul says, I'm not done. There's application. Now you are free to live that way. You have this mind, have that mind in you. You die. You die for others. Wait, is that really what Paul does? Yeah. He goes a little bit after that, and he says, I've been poured out as a drink offering on the altar of your faith. Jesus has freed me to do that. Timothy has been giving himself for the church, and Epaphroditus has given himself to the point that he almost died, but he didn't even want you guys to know because he was so concerned about you. Have that mind in yourselves. That's love. I remember years and years ago, 
at a previous church I was a part of. And the pastor said, you know how good of a servant you are when people treat you like one. Did you hear that? You know how good of a servant you are when people treat you like one. Someone who actually believes they're a servant, someone who is a servant, knows they're a servant. That's what I am. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But I've been set free to even be able to take those. The Apostle Paul even says it to the Corinthians. The more I love you, the less I'm loved, so I'm out. No, that's not what he says. Some of you remember the sermon I preached towards the end of last year with the jars of clay and the broken pots. Do you know actually the context of that was Paul saying, you guys are the ones that are breaking me. And yet, I want you to see, by Jesus, I love you. And you can see the light of Jesus as I continue to serve you. As I continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's not only Paul who emphasizes this dying. I mean, Paul's, Paul's mantra, if you, if you start reading New Testament letters, you'll see application is die because there's resurrection. Die because through death is life. Through death is life. Through death is life. Through death is life. Peter, die because through death is life. It's all throughout because that is, that is Jesus Christ. And to follow Jesus, we have to die to rise. Has Christ set you free? And has he set you free then to show his worth to one another? Yes. And since he's done that, commit to devote yourself. And we must commit to devote ourselves to communing with God together in the word and prayer. As we live this, can you imagine if we lived this way, if we lived this way, how we would think about each other and even how the world might think about us? They're different. Like the only thing that is keeping them together is this one named Jesus. Yes. I want that to be the only thing. God's glory in the face of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So die. I'm reminded of an older song that I was actually only recently introduced to. I'm going to read to you the lyrics. And maybe sometime you might want to find it online and just listen to it. Nothing chills the heart of man like passing through death's gate. Yet to him who enters daily, death's a glorious fate. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here to be a holy bride and daily cross death's threshold to the holy life inside. Enter in. Enter in. Surrender to the Spirit's call to die and enter in. Enter in. Find peace within. The holy life awaits you. Enter in. The conflict still continues raging deep within the soul. My spirit wars against my flesh in a struggle for control. My only hope is full surrender. So with each borrowed breath, I inhale the spirit's will for me to die a deeper death. If mourners should lament, let them weep 
for those alive. For only when my will is killed can my soul survive. Only when my will is killed. And if I can put that in the plural, only when our, as a local church, only when our will is killed can our soul survive. Because we know Jesus as our greatest treasure. By the Lord's mercy, may we together think differently than the world and determine together to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Together, let's commune with the Lord, embracing Christ's death and dying for one another so that the, savory of Je- the savoriness of Jesus is tasted all the more in this world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Glorious are you. You are glorious. And we need you to enable us and to empower us, to, to grant within us the desires that we, we need for you. For those who are here who maybe they're dry and they are worn out spiritually, I pray that you would refresh them. I pray that all of us would realize how great the treasure is that we have in Jesus Christ. And that because of Jesus, I'm asking, Father, that we would truly have this devotion to you and a devotion to your people. It's because of your love that we can love. And so I pray that we would experience more and more your love in us and through us and that we truly would be the light of the world that you say that we are. Help. Help, Father. And it's because of Christ we pray and plead. Amen. Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you that you are the God who listens. You're the God who hears. And that Jesus himself even said that he died so that we could pray to you and know that you would listen and comfort and care. Help us, God, to grow in this belief and assurance. And Father, in the midst of these glorious truths, we're just so burdened by the painful reality that sin has brought in and even just specifically with Dave. I have no idea what this battle must feel like. But I pray, God, that you would give him the endurance, the perseverance, the comfort and encouragement that he needs. And for Sherry taking care of him, the toll on her has been for so long as well. And I pray that you would nourish her as she needs and even help us as we can to be able to come alongside. Oh, Father, to you be the glory. Let us see your glory and live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.